Okay, uh, we are going to try to finish the Old Testament today on wrath. And we're on page 8. This will conclude our Old Testament portion of God's wrath in the Bible. Uh, And we're talking about anger in metaphoric terms or as a metaphor. So maybe the title could be anger as a metaphor. But if we get time, we will be moving on to another step. I, I don't envision this taking a lot of time for the reason that I went through it last Sabbath and a lot of this is repetition from what we've already covered. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll be skipping a lot of this and um, hopefully moving through it quite quickly. So what is a metaphor? Let's uh, talk about that a little bit before we jump into this. Anybody want to try? Sure. Uh, it, it's a symbol of... It's like a way to represent one object or idea with another to try to describe it. It's a descriptive term, I think. It's 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 the first. If you take a continuum of language, it's the the farthest out of what we end up with as an analogy, you know, or a parable. Parable probably farther than analogy, where we take something in the concrete world, or even in the abstract world that represents something else uh, that helps it's also abstract and that helps us to understand it uh, and it does seem that there are passages in the Bible where wrath is metaphoric so let's look at uh, Deuteronomy 29 and uh, verse 20 it says 19 there but that's the Hebrew verses <laughs> which often differ from the English uh, so it's really verse 20. And uh, Tara, would you like to read that, please? The Lord will never be willing to forgive them. His wrath and zeal will burn against them. All the curses written in this book will fall on them, and the Lord will blot out their names from under heaven. Okay, Uh, maybe we should look at what the context is. It sounds pretty scary here. It has to do with idolatry, serving of the nation's gods. Uh, that's one of the things that God is the toughest about in the Old Testament. And maybe we should pause a little bit and ask why. Why does he make such strong statements about idolatry? Idolatry is the most destructive to the Israelites in both their insides, like their hearts, because it turns them away from God. And then also physically, they leave God a lot when they practice idolatry. Okay. So it's a destructive. Let's unpack that. What did idolatry lead the Israelites to do? What kinds of things? Child sacrifices, for one thing. Yes. That's the kind of the, the ultimate uh, end of the trajectory. Uh, they offer their children, which means that they saw a deity as angry, as power-based, and needing to be appeased. So how do you talk to people who are given to doing that. They're given to see gods as angry, other gods as angry, and they're seeing those gods are more powerful in their imagination than Yahweh, and therefore they must serve them or they will get reprisal if they don't. They will get retribution. They will get punishment. Uh, and so they they serve them and they, they're willing to go to the, all the lengths of offering their children 
to appease their anger. How does how do you talk to people like that? No, I love you, but these gods will whack me if I don't. You know, and 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 you have this this dichotomy. Yeah, I think God has to prove that He's more powerful, so He shows that side of Himself. I'll be, in other words, I will be utterly angry if you try to appease my anger <laughs> by those means. I mean, it's, it, it sort of feels like fighting fire with fire, but if you can't hear the still small voice of love, then the voice has to be raised. And, and that's one of the things that, uh, before we finish the study, we're gonna, I'm gonna provide another document on wrath and revelation. Because it plays out beautifully in terms of Babylon, Babylonian understandings of God versus Yahweh and who He really is, and the contrast is is great. So I see the three angels' messages as God talking softly in the first angel. The first angels, all we need it has the everlasting gospel. It tells us to worship God and 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 to fear Him for the hour of His judgment has come. That word fear means reverence. It's all we need. But if we don't listen to that message, there's one that follows. Babylon has fallen. Now we're getting some thunder in this. And, and if we don't heed that message, and that, if we don't heed that message, it's because we're very Babylonian. And being Babylonian, really, as we're going to work it out, is going to mean angry gods needing appeasement. Uh, gods based on power. And the th- third angel, then, is, okay, I'm gonna pour out my anger on you. You know, the, uh, the wrath of God is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation and they suffer in torture by his presence day and night and they have no rest day and night. Uh, so you have this formidable language in the third angel that is speaking to the people who have rejected the first and second angel's messages. And and I think that that is, is maybe helpful as a paradigm uh, to follow here. So that that's a little bit of a di, uh, digression here, but I think this is important. But what I want you to notice about verse 20 is that the Lord's anger and passion will smolder <laughs> against that person. This is a, it's like it's burning, it's it's smoking. It's uh, I think some versions have smoke against them, and so it's it's almost like God's wrath is something that has a. a an action behind it. Uh, it's a metaphor for fire, in a sense. Psalm 74, 1, we won't take the time to look it up. It says, God, why have you abandoned us forever? Why does your anger smolder at the sheep of your pasture? So, again, you have this metaphor of anger smoldering, but it's in the context of God abandoning us. So, again, we have this tie-in to anger really being God letting people go, and it seems like he has abandoned them. Uh, let's go to Isaiah 30, 33. i start with verse 32. This is talking about Assyria. In fact, why don't we start with verse 31, and it'll be clearer. Oh, let's start with 30. <laughs> Actually, it is 30, 30, sorry. 30, chapter 30, 30. I, I read it wrong. 
Um, you want to read uh, 30 to 32, Adam? And the Lord will make his majestic voice heard. He will display the strength of his mighty arm. It will descend with devouring flames, with cloudbursts, thunderstorms, and huge hailstones. At the Lord's command, the Assyrians will be shattered. He will strike them down with his royal scepter. As the Lord strikes them with his rod of punishment, his people will celebrate with tambourines and harps. Lifting his mighty arm, he will fight the Assyrians. Tophet, the place of burning, has long been ready for the Assyrian king. The pyre is piled high with wood. The breath of the Lord, like a fire in a volcano, will set it ablaze. Powerful imagery, isn't it? It's scary. Uh, He will terrify Assyria. Now, you need to know, this is Neo-Assyria. Neo-Assyria is characterized by conquest and uh, terror to other nations. Uh, The Assyrian kings, Sennacherib, uh, Assurbanipal, Oh, I forget all of their names, were marching out and conquering other nations. And according to the Bible, they were dashing children's heads against the rock, uh, taking their by their feet and just uh, killing them, ripping up pregnant women, uh, being ruthless, extremely ruthless. And uh, he, what he is doing here is really speaking Assyrian. Okay, you're doing all of this, this destructive work against my people and against the nations. Then I will be as angry as your, any of your gods. And, and the Assyrian gods were potentially very angry. So this place, Tophet, is an allusion to the Valley of Hinnom, which Jeremiah calls Tophet. It's the place where they did child sacrifice in Jerusalem. So God is taking that imagery and turning it on them and saying, since you delight in human carnage and, and violence and, and destruction and burning, that's what's going to happen to you. And, and I have made its wood pile high and deep, wide and deep and fire and wood in abundance. And all I have to do is breathe on it and it will ignite. This is metaphoric, symbolic language. Are we to take it literally? What can we get behind the metaphor to understand what is really being said? We saw last time that when God says he does something, often it's that he allows it, right? God's, thus the Lord slew Saul. Uh, Saul took his own life. So when he makes the wood piled, piled wide and deep, simply by allowing this royal rage, which is very prominent in the Neo-Syrian period, angry kings going out into battle and rage and, and conquering other nations, especially any rebels who, who manifest themselves against them. And by rebels, I mean they're ones that broke the treaty that uh, Syria had made with them. So they, they get angry, they go out against these nations, they wreak carnage, and all God has to do is allow that to build and to build and build, and what they're doing is stacking the wood for themselves, metaphorically speaking, building, building their own pyre, and it's going to ignite 
by simply God breathing life. God's breath is life-giving, and and this the, when it, when God breathes, it's always to give life. But but when a person is out of harmony with that breath, it is destructive to them. So you have to go back to Genesis two seven. God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a, a living being. So God's the breath of the Lord, like a stream of brimstone, ignites it. It's their own fire. It's the own consequences of of what they're doing. And this is this is where why metaphor is important to get behind and and to recognize its symbol symbolism, so that we don't get caught up in a literalistic reading of it. So one another way of looking at it is if when we experience consuming fire, that, that is that is talking about destruction of enemy forces. And certainly the enemy forces did come and destroy Assyria, uh, Babylon, Babel, the Neo-Babylonian period. Uh, the Babylonians came under Nabopolassar and, and they destroyed Assyria in terms of uh, being a, a robust nation. So when you have fire in connection with this, it always usually means enemy forces coming up and burning the city. And it's ripe for destruction because they have basically created the scene that is going to be their own destruction. And one way to use an analogy for this is you think of oppressive nations in more modern times. Like, for example, what happened in, to communism? Communism was extremely oppressive to its people. Um, what happened to it? They built a whole system that could not stand. Their oppression fell on themselves and they, it self-destructed. And, and there were certain things that probably led to that. I think the earthquake in Afghanistan, which was one of the first times that uh, reports came out of behind the Iron Curtain of, of actual destruction going on. They wouldn't admit to things like that before. Chernobyl was another one that probably helped lead to that. Did God do those things? Did he cause the earthquake? No. Uh, but he allowed it to happen. And so you can argue that when a, a nation exercises oppression, things fall apart internally. And then when the Iron Curtain fell, it was from within. Uh, it, impl- it kind of imploded on itself. All that violence came out then against the, the people who were in charge, the administration. So that's what I think the Bible is depicting. And it's using symbolic language, and it makes it look like God uh, is one doing it. But really, this is God giving them over to his consequences. Uh, just a peek on where we're headed. When we look at Babylon and do some comparison, everything in Babylon, Babylonia and Assyria to very ancient times suggests that the more power kings had, the more gods were angry. The more power kings had, the more kings were angry, and then the more gods were angry. And in your dealing uh, with some of this, uh, Isaiah is during the monarchy, is it not? Deuteronomy is written with an eye to the monarchy. Psalm 74 is probably written after the monarchy has started. So the more you have the power, a centralization of power, the more you have anger applied to deity. And then God has to speak that language in order to be heard. I'll be revisiting that. Lamentations 2, 3. 
Anger symbolized by captivity. It, it speaks of burning like fire. You don't have to turn to this, uh, but burning like fire. Again, this fire metaphor. Isaiah 13.9 is probably one we should look at. Go ahead, uh, Christina. See, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the earth a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Okay, if you read the whole chapter, verse 1 says, this is an oracle about Babylon. So when it says that the day of the Lord is coming with cruel rage and burning anger, making the earth a ruin, what is it actually speaking of? What's the literal aspect behind the metaphor? What is actually going to happen to Babylon? It's going to be destroyed by an enemy army. Exactly. Exactly. So that's one of the reasons fire is being used so much. There's there's two things coming together. The fire the enemy forces did to cities to destroy them. They would burn them with fire. And the fire of Tophet, the, the child sacrifices that the uh, Jews were offering in, uh, or the people of Judah were offering uh, on the south end of Jerusalem. So those two things come together as a metaphor for what is God simply allowing enemy forces to come and destroy. Okay, Isaiah 30, we'd already looked at Isaiah 30, uh, 27 to 30, so we'll skip that. I've skipped Job 14, 13, it's not very helpful. Isaiah 42, 25, uh, I'll go ahead and read that verse. So God poured out on Jacob the heat of his anger and the fury of battle. It scorched him, and he didn't know it. It burned him, but he didn't give it much thought. So what reality? It's the fury of battle. Okay? God poured out on Jacob the heat of his anger and the fury of battle. The heat of his anger is the, the terrible consequences that people stack up against themselves. The more God is gracious and merciful and patient with people, the worse are the consequences. Why would that be? It makes sense that people left alone just do wretched things to themselves. And so the more God's patient and stands back and lets it happen, the more chaotic it becomes. Yeah, it kind of has a self-momentum all its own. Um, it, we have the expression, give them enough rope to hang themselves. <laughs> you, know, you, you allow it to happen. You don't intervene. You don't push them back. You don't try to stop them. And what happens is they get more and more rope, and then they hang themselves. And because the rope is so long, it does a really good job. Uh, that's, a, that's a really grotesque metaphor, but, <laughs> but, it, we, but it does exp- explain that the more God is patient and merciful, the more he shows his love, the more you're going to have violent people are going to fight against it. Okay, but look at verses 23 and 24. Which of you will listen to this, will pay attention and respond from now on? Who gave Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunders? Wasn't it the Lord, the one we sinned against? They were not willing 
to walk in God's ways and wouldn't listen to his teaching. So God poured out on Jacob the heat of his anger and the fury of battle. This giving people over to the looters and to the plunders is parallel to pouring out his wrath. That's It's a parallel line. So we want to keep that in mind. Okay, Isaiah 66, 15. Um, Tara, why don't you read? Read 15 and 16. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Okay, so he comes with fire, God's chariots like windstorm. This is actually talking about, I think, the final destruction of the wicked. So he comes with his chariot. That's always a movement, a shift is taking place. It's also a war symbol. Chariots were used in war. So the Lord's power will be known among his servants, and the Lord will come with fire. I think if we apply what we've learned from Isaiah 42:25 and 30:27-30, we can see that this this is simply a metaphor for the consequences. Only when Jesus comes back, the Second uh, Thessalonians talks about him being that the wicked are destroyed by the brightness of his coming uh, because they're out of harmony with it. They cannot live in that glory. Psalm 18, uh, I have slash 9 slash 8. That's because one verse is in English and the other is in Hebrew. And let's see. Yeah, verse 8. Tara, will you want to read that? Oh, I'm sorry. I guess you already read. <laughs> Christina, you can read it. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. Is that literal? No, I don't think so. This is a metaphor for the power of God to the person writing. This is a psalmist uh, who's crying out in distress. If you look at verse 6, he's crying out in distress for help. He calls from his temple. And to him, it's very reassuring to have this powerful image of God coming down to rescue him. So it's, it's about rescue in the context. And uh, Psalm 21, I'm sorry, it's verse 9. I have verse 10 there, but that's the Hebrew. When you appear, Lord, you will light them up like an oven on fire. God will eat them whole in his anger. Fire will devour them. Will he really do that, literally? Now, you see, this is poetic imagery. You will destroy their offspring from the land. You will destroy their descendants from the human race. And, of course... This is, this is again the viewpoint that is prevalent throughout the ancient Near East, uh, that everything, every time a person dies, every time they get sick, every time they have misfortune, it is God, God, some God getting angry and punishing them. And a lot of Israelites shared that view. Let's look at Ezekiel. We're jumping down now to Ezekiel. Um, and I, let's not even look that up because I have it here. My wrath shall be poured out on Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. My wrath shall be poured out on this place and not be quenched. It's the same type of thing. God, when God 
in his wrath lets people go. And it's not, again, I don't believe it's because he's angry in a, in a, in a rage like we human beings get angry. It is, it is his, the natural consequences of having to give people up when they don't want him. And he suffers intense grief. And I really think that his anger is extremely intense grief over loss. And the reason I think that is because instead of saying God got angry with the flood, at the flood, he's grieved to his heart. And that's, that's the first canonical reference to anything that you would expect divine anger. And then we're going to hit a parallel passage in Mark where Jesus looks at them in anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So I, I see God's anger as grief. But when he, when he has to let people go, the consequences are that the armies come. And so this is another example of those. Um, here's Isaiah 63, 3 to 6. We're going to combine the next two verses. So let's go to Isaiah 63, 3 to 6. And Tara, why don't you read that? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered with my, splat, spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Is that literal? It's obvious, poetic, obvious poetic, obviously poetic imagery. And, and does this possibly depict what will happen in a world without God? So it's a very vivid description of, of God trotting uh, down the grapes of wrath. It's really about, it, it, the metaphor is, is, is the tramping of the grapes during harvest to make grape juice. Only they apply it to God trampling down the people. Does he do that literally? And what does this mean? This is sometimes, I believe, applied to Jesus. Did Jesus do this? When he got salvation, it was his own blood that got shed. Uh, so I, I would like to suggest... Uh, the day of, the context is salvation here, and the day of vengeance equals the day of deliverance, uh, the year of deliverance. If you look at, um, verse 4, because I intended a day of, of vengeance, the year of my deliverance had arrived. So, in the process of getting salvation for us, uh, taking this typologically, Jesus demonstrated the full, full revelation of, of God's wrath. And watching how he dies is, is definitely the fulfillment of a metaphor for wrath. Any metaphor for wrath. And we'll understand that better when we get through the New Testament. Let's move to, uh, Ezekiel 22, 20 to 21, which is the next page. And you don't have to look it up. Um, it's right there. 
Uh, as one gathers silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin into a smelter to blow the fire upon them in order to melt them, so I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath I will put you in and melt you. <laughs> Very fierce language. Again, the fiercest language about God's wrath is during the monarchical period. So keep that in mind when, when we look at this in terms of Babylon, it's going to get more clear. But it, obviously this isn't li- literal. Uh, what happens in war, in the ancient and eastern warfare, was uh, felt to the people like they were put in a smelter and, and burned and melted down. Uh, Isaiah 51:17. What does it mean to drink the cup of God's wrath? This is what these verses talk about. And uh, maybe we should look this one up. And Christina, would you like to read that, please? Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Stand up, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl of staggering. Okay, look at verse, uh, read uh, verses 13 and 19. You have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. But where is the fury of the oppressor? These two things have befallen you. Who will grieve with you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your children have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of the Lord the rebuke of your God. Therefore hear this, you who are wounded, who are drunk, but not with, but not with wine. Thus says the sovereign, the Lord, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken from you the hand, I have taken, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. You shall drink no more from the bowl of my wrath. And I will put it into your hand of your tormentors who have said to you, Bow down, that we may walk on you. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to walk on. Okay. Before the exile, it was unthinkable to Israel that anyone other than God could be punishing them through other armies, through other nations. This is, this is their perception. The prophets speak in that language because that is the, the language of the ancient Near East. And, and particularly... Um, uh, you have Isaiah uh, through Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel uh, prophesying at the peak of the monarchy when power uh, power struggles were at their peak in their height. <clears throat> in between Neo-Assyria and Neo-Babylon, you have this increase of power. So what does it mean to drink the cup of God's wrath? Why would a cup metaphor be used? Traditionally, it has been viewed that the longer God waits, the more angry he gets. And he puts all his wrath in a cup. He stores it up. The day comes. But I'd like to turn that on its head. Pouring out is letting go. Uh, And what people do 
is store up the consequences. The longer God waits, those consequences get worse and worse. Psalm 76 is a very interesting one. Um, but before we do that, look down at Hosea 5, uh, 10. It talks about God pouring out wrath like water. Again, letting things go, letting the wrath go, which uh, I think in a sense you can say that wrath is a metaphor for the destructive things that happen because people uh, become violent and, and sin. And uh, it's the natural outworking of idolatry. Idolatry always tends to lead us towards violence, towards desecration of human beings, uh, towards loveless acts. But let's look then at Psalm 76. It'll be our last one. This is a very unusual little passage. And um, it is 76. It's probably verse 10. Let me take a look. Yes. Go ahead and read it, Tara. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. What version are you reading? NIV. NIV. And that's Psalm 7610? Yes. Yeah, my version, I'll read my version. Even human rage will turn to your praise when you dress yourself with whatever remains of your wrath, but your is not in the Hebrew. So I'm going to read it as it should be in the Hebrew. Even human rage will turn to your praise when you dress yourself with whatever remains of wrath. What does that mean? That's why I have a sick there. It means that it's an error. It's not in the Hebrew. We're reading it into the text. How does God wrap human wrath around him so that it praises him? Like a garment? Verse 7, and I can see why the version would translate this. If you look at verse 7, who can stand before you when you are angry? You have announced judgment from heaven. The earth grew afraid and fell silent when God rose up to establish justice, when God rose up to save all of the earth's poor. I think what this is saying is God's wrath is for saving the oppressed and it is directed at those who are angry. It's directed at the abusers. You know, those who like to use Jesus cleansing the temple as an example of when Jesus got angry and, and really acted violently, are missing the point. First of all, the text doesn't say anywhere in the Gospels that Jesus was angry. I believe he did it with unparalleled dignity and calmness. I don't think he was flying off into a rage. And I think that made it all the more powerful and all the more frightening. <laughs> but it made it frightening to the abusers. didn't make it frightening to the children. It made it frightening to the abusers. So um, that's how I see God wearing his wearing human wrath. We're the ones always flying off in a rage. We're the ones angry. And that wrath has been attributed to God because there was no understanding of cause-effect relationships or very limited understanding of cause-and-effect relationships. 
but I I really see any divine anger. These these metaphors are really directed all, wholesale to abusers, to people who are angry, to people who are upset, and and by by saying God is angry with you and He's going to deal with you, it's it's it, it, it's the only way to speak to people who are angry, really. Okay, um, there's a note that con- uh, concludes this, and this will give us a peek into next week because we are going to look and compare Babylon with the Old Testament. Not once in all of the descriptions of God's character, or I emphasize character, does the Old Testament suggest that anger or wrath are part of his nature. The closest you get to it is slow to anger. The only exception is jealousy. In the Ten Commandments, God is a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the parents upon the children of the third and fourth generation, but showing mercy to thousands of them who love him and keep his commandments. What do you think this jealousy refers to? Allowing the consequences? Allowing the consequences, yeah. Visiting the iniquities certainly can mean allowing those iniquities to do their cause and effect relationship. The term jealousy comes out of the marriage covenant. Uh, this is a God who wants intimacy with Israel, which is unparalleled in the ancient Near East. You do not get intimate with gods anywhere else but Israel. God wants intimacy. He wants loyalty. He wants faithfulness from Israel. So when they worship other gods, the only way he can express it to them in ways they would understand is to say, I'm a jealous God. That means I'm your husband. Why are you cheating on me? You know, and going after other gods. And I think at the heart of it, God is jealous because he knows that they're cheating themselves. They're not cheating him. They're cheating themselves by taking on gods that will not love them like he does. Well, I have a whole handout that we will wait until next week. I'm going to start emailing all of you with because next week is going to be one of the most significant times we get together on. Um, so stay tuned. Let's have prayer. Father, we pray as we uh, move forward in our study that we may understand clearly the direction that the Bible takes us in terms of how ancient Near Eastern people saw their deities. We pray that this picture will become clear, that we will understand that you speak strongly to people who use power and might and force and anger to oppress others, and that to those who are the victims, you speak peace. I pray that we may understand more fully the wisdom of your ways, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.